Welcome to week two of the series, The Bible uh, for Grownups. Uh, that actually connects, and I'll explain why here in a second, but I'm guessing you have all had uh, a similar, not so extreme situation where you have been misunderstood, yes? Okay, wow, that was, yep, okay, some strong yeses. Yeah, where you and your spouse were talking and you ended up, you know, feeling like you're on the same page and ending up not being at all on the same page, having a complete miscommunication. Um, this actually happens, I know it's shocking to believe, uh, but with uh, Stephanie, my wife, and I, I know you would think two pastors together, it would be perfect. Uh, and it is, it is. But sometimes, sometimes, we do miscommunicate. Uh, we're not always on the same page, and uh, it leads to some frustration, uh, sometimes some arguments even, uh, some louder arguments, some very strong and intentional arguments. That's just what you get with two pretty strong personalities. And uh, one thing that somebody told me a long time ago that I'm uh, like a little golden nugget of information that I'm going to give you um, today because not only am I going to help you relationally, but I'm going to help you understand the Bible all in one Sunday because that's just how we roll here at Infused Church. Um, one uh, little idea that they gave me was to ask for clarification behind someone's anger. And I was like, that sounds so simple. How in the world could it work? But now in practice, I found as many things relationally, as many things in marriage and dating are, it's a lot harder than it actually appears to be. Because in the moment, just like in the video, when you think somebody is saying something that's threatening you, that's critical of you, you just want to react. You just act. You don't think. And their question forces you to slow down and think. So sometimes, you know, when Stephanie's upset about something, I immediately think, or she makes a statement of like frustration or anger, I immediately think, it's my fault. You know, I'm to blame. And she's telling me this because I did something wrong and I'm in the doghouse. So then I immediately go on the defensive, um, which is not at all necessary, but then because I go on the defensive, she goes on the defensive, and then we just go on this downward spiral down, down and down and down. Anyways, and so then, not too far down, but you know, down. And so um, then uh, what, in, in the moments of sanity that I have, what I'll then say to clarify the situation, is I'll say, thank you for telling me that. I just want to clarify, are you upset with me? And all of these times that I think she's upset at me, she says, no, I'm not upset at you. But I perceive her frustration and her venting, maybe related to something that I was involved in or doing, as anger towards me. And it turns out we had a complete miscommunication. And the fight we were inevitably going to have was not needed because she wasn't even upset at me in the first place. But isn't it so good that I clarified why in the world she was upset in the first place? It was some really great advice. And so... That's what I want to encourage you to do, too. You know, I feel like you're upset with me. Is that true? Concerned husbands everywhere, right? <laughs> right. I'm just going to clarify what's happening. I'm going to clarify who is or is not upset at who. And it goes both ways, right? I know I can clarify. I can even take the initiative and say, hey, I just want to let you know um, that I'd like to vent for a second. It has nothing to do with you. Um, but would you be willing to hear me vent? And it just sets the stage. It gives an easy on-ramp to a conversation where I can still vent. She can hear me, but she doesn't take it 
personally. And so I really would encourage you to try that relationally sometime, okay? I feel like some men, you need to say this at least inside your heads, I feel like you're unset with me. Is that true? Okay, that's gonna just do you wonders. Okay, um, this is also something that you can do when it comes to the Bible. But in a lot of situations, we don't do this when it comes to the Bible. We are notorious as Christians, notorious as Christians, for not asking for more information, not approaching the Bible in all its complexities for more information and curiosity. We just take it as face value, we hear it, we act, react, and we move on. Even if we may be wildly off base from what the Bible actually says. And that's part of the problem is we kind of perceive that way of reading the Bible as we grow up, especially, you know, if we're reading a children's Bible or something, it's very plain, it's very clear. And so we think, well, that's how when we grow up and we move up to the big Bible, the grown-up Bible, that's how we read the Bible too. But that's also why a lot of you have stopped reading the Bible because you open this thing up and you flip to a random page because, you know, where do I really even start? And you start reading and you're, you know, five verses in and you're like, wait, what did that just say? And it's too complicated, too difficult. And so you absolutely just walk away and just be done. Unfortunately, we fall into this habit of reading the Bible at face value or what's kind of become known as literalism. We literally read it. We don't ask questions. We don't seek clarification and we just go on. And then unfortunately that leads to a misunderstanding. It leads to a pretty significant misunderstanding. So today, what I'm going to do, um, because this series isn't very long, it's only four weeks, is we're just going to jump right into the deep end. So if it's your first time today and you're like, wow, Taylor, when you jump into the deep end, we're jumping to the deep end, that's where we're going to go today. And if you're not new here and you've been coming here for a while, you know that sometimes we're just going to go there. And so today is a day when we're just going to go there because you can all handle it, right? You had your coffee, grab some donuts halfway through. If you need to take a break, just cool off, okay? But we're just going to jump in today. Um, we're specifically going to jump in, start off in the New Testament, spend most of our time in the New Testament. The New Testament is like the Old Testament, like the whole nation of Israel thing, then Jesus' birth, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. Uh, now we're in the New Testament. And then you get to a bunch of letters. We call them the epistles. If you're fancy Christians, you call them epistles. Or you can be a, a casual Christian, you can say letters. Anyways, you get into the letters and you start reading and it gets really practical and really helpful. And you're like, oh, this is really good. And you get going along and you start reading Paul and Paul's really good. He can be really deep at some times, but he's, he's really good and really practical. Paul, um, super relatable to me. He hated Christians. I was a season in life where I was pretty angry. I don't know if I hated, but I was pretty angry at Christians, and um, he was that way. In fact, he like jailed them and, and got them executed, which is definitely not uh, good. And then he met Jesus. He met the resurrected Jesus, changed his total life, and he was a sold-out, Jesus-loving Christian, uh, and he really changed the world um, because of his interaction with Jesus. Anyway, so you start reading his letters, and you get into um, one of the letters he wrote to uh, the church in Corinth, which is a town in the middle uh, Mediterranean rim, and uh, it was a Roman town because uh, they were the occupiers, and he wrote it to the church there. And a church in those days would have been about this size, actually probably a little smaller than that. Uh, they'd meet in houses because they were under persecution, and they didn't have like a church building, and so they'd 
he'd send him a letter, and then, like, let's say this half of the room, you all would get together in one house, and then somebody would come along and read Paul's letter to all of you, and then you'd share that letter with the online people, and the online people would share it with this half of the room, and you'd all read it, and you'd spend some time processing it and talking about it, and taking action upon it. And, and so that's how, how the early church worked. That was their Bible because there was no Bible in those days as we have it today. That was their Bible. They just get, physically get this letter um, that now is a part of our, uh, that's now a part of our Bible. So anyways, so you start reading, you get to 1 Corinthians. So this is a first letter of at least four that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We only have two. We talked about that last week. We lost two. I don't know who lost it, Somebody really dropped the ball, but it's really like 1st and 4th Corinthians, and we lost the 2nd and 3rd one, okay? Maybe they weren't very good. I don't know. But anyways, so you get to 1st Corinthians, you're reading along, and you get halfway through, a little past halfway through, um, to what we call 1st Corinthians chapter 14. And I'm just letting you know, for our modern day sensibilities, this, is, this pushes it just a little bit, Okay. So here's what Paul says. You're reading along. Oh, this is really good. And then you get here. Women should remain silent in the churches. Told you we're going to go there today. (laughs) They're laughing. Online, they're laughing. I don't know if you can hear that. They're laughing. They're like, yeah, let's do it. Okay. They are not allowed to speak. (laughs) Come on. It's in the Bible. But must be, uh, must be in submission as the law says, okay? Isn't that pure and clean and easy to understand, all right? Any questions? Yeah. Okay, so what actually happens with this verse? Like practically in the church, how does this play out today? Well, it doesn't really. Yeah, the, yeah, the opposite. Yeah, actually, yeah, technically it kind of does, yeah. Um, I'm sure if there was some research done, maybe there is, it, it kind of is the opposite. Um, yeah, because, I mean, come on, men, how comfortable would you feel right now if I said, all right, turn to all the ladies in your lives and tell them this verse? <laughs> okay? You would be uncomfortable, to say the least, right? You're like, this is not going to go well. I don't think there's any little nuggets, golden nuggets that you could give me, Taylor, of like, honey, are you upset now that I've told you this first? You know, like, yes, yes, I am. Are you mad at me? Yes, yes, I am. Okay, anyways, so (laughs) I got a little off topic. Back on the notes. Okay, um, you have a couple of options with this verse, all right? Because, I mean, it's very difficult to get around this because this is this is what the Bible says. So a lot of, um, a, a portion of modern day Christianity, Christians today, especially in Western culture, this is really a Western culture problem that we're going to talk about today. Um, and I don't have time to go into why that is, but it's a Western culture problem. Okay. And so the w- part of the church today says this, says something to the effect of, well, the Bible says, okay, the Bible says women should be silent in churches. And so therefore they should be. But in reality, as we just admitted, that's not actually how it works out. Why not? Do you not believe the Bible? Do you not want to enforce what the Bible says? So what a lot of churches do is then they take this verse and they contextualize it with another writing that Paul had to one of his protégés, Timothy, and they pair it with this verse, which is another one that you, you might also be familiar with, especially ladies. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain, again, quiet. And so the conclusion, therefore, should be that, well, we're not going to tell women not to talk, but we're not going to let them be in leadership. We're not going to let them be pastors. And 
inevitably, that kind of leaves you with a contradiction. It kind of leaves you with, let's be honest, a mess. And it's a mess that skeptics like me years ago looked at the church, looked at Christians and said, you guys don't really have your act together, do you? Like, what is it that you really believe? Because you don't even follow the book for what it says And you kind of pick and pull verses. You've heard that expression before, right? You pick and pull verses. You pull verses out of context. Because one perspective says, you look at Paul and says a woman should be quiet. But in practical terms, you say, that doesn't actually play out. So what's missing? How do we fix this? How do we resolve this? How do we resolve what we actually do, slash somewhat do, with what it actually says. Well, some of us leave the church. In fact, a growing majority of people just walk away from Christianity altogether because nobody gives them a good answer to this question. That was me. Another group of people, they go with the black and white answer. They say, well, it's in there. That's the way it is, even though we don't fully follow it completely letter for letter, but that's what you're supposed to do. So we kind of do that. And then some of us, some of the church tries to thread the middle and they say, well, you know, women, you can serve up to this level, but not any higher than that level. Then that's reserved for the men. Um, But you can talk. But then if it's this level, then you need to be quiet. And it's kind of just this weird little in-between game that we play. And then other people look from the outside in and say, you guys are just a complete mess. So it's just really a disaster. So what is it that we're missing? What is it that we really need to get in our minds to take us from reading the Bible as a child to reading the Bible as a grown-up, as an adult? To get you that answer, I'm going to ask you what feels like a question out of left field. I promise it is not, but I want you to think about it. So if you can switch brains for just a second, here's the question. Why don't you let kids watch scary movies? Why don't you let your four-year-old watch Saw? Okay, yeah, we laugh, right? Because it's like obvious. Well, because, because Taylor, I mean, they literally like cutting appendages off. It's disgusting. It's awful. It's terrible. It's scary. Like my children wouldn't sleep for a week. They'd be scarred. In fact, you're not wrong. Children who experience some of those adult images prior to the appropriate development will experience trauma later. It will, will be impacted by the trauma of what they've seen right? I mean, it's obvious. It's easy to say, well, it's because it's scary, but I need you to dig a little deeper. Why is it? Why? Dig deeper. Why is it that you do not let kids or you filter what kids see? And then as they get older, you may give them more allowance and freedom in what they can see and what they can do. Why is that? Because, because kids don't fully, kids don't fully grasp the context. Kids are incapable of grasping at certain ages the full concept, context, and breadth of what is occurring. And so they look at these situations in a way overtly dramatic and literal sense. They literally think someone is like sawing something off their body. I mean, it's awful. That's how they perceive it. Whereas adults, we sit there and part of our brain's like, that's not good. And another part of our brain's is like, why am I kind of still watching this? Um, Or some of us are like, I'm definitely not watching this, right? Why? We know it's not real, but as a kid, you can't tell that it's not real. And it's going to hurt you because you cannot contextualize it with the rest of life. You cannot cannot know fully that it is not 
real and compartmentalize that and put that in its proper place, right? To a kid, think about this. To a kid, when mom and dad are mad, mom and dad are just mad, right? There's no like in between. It's just black and white. But then you grow up and you hit your teenage years and you hit your 30s and then you look at mom and dad and you realize, didn't this happen to you as well? You realize, well, mom and dad are just stressed because they don't have a healthy work-life balance and therefore they live in a constant state of stress, leaving them easily triggered by the smallest of problems. Okay, some of us, some of us come to that part of maturity, right? But what happened there? You contextualize it, right? It went from mom and dad are mad to mom and dad are overworked and they're tired and they're easily going to be stressed out and easily get angry. What happened? You matured, you grew up. But unfortunately, and this sounds super strong and super aggressive, and I don't mean it so, so hopefully, I hope that you will contextualize this, but unfortunately, many of us, many of us in the church, many Christians have stuck themselves in a childhood interpretation and engagement of the Bible where they avoid, are intimidated, and honestly scared to contextualize what they read. To read this whole thing as a story, as a start to finish, big complete work that tells how God has interacted with humanity over thousands and thousands of years in light of different cultures, different contexts, and different times. Because that's what the Bible is. It's over multiple millennia. How many books do you have span multiple millennia? written by the ancient authors themselves. Very, very few. This is a very, very unique work. And so we can either ignore it and try to remain in a childhood interpretation, or we have to force ourselves to grow up, which means we get uncomfortable, it's difficult, but say, I'm going to look at this thing for the complexity that it is, and that's okay. We need to realize that the Bible was written in another time, in another culture, and that we need to honor that context, not dishonor it. Because to take it and put it in our 21st century terms means that we dishonor the authors and the season in which it was written. And I don't know about you, but I just personally try not to dishonor the Bible if I can help it. Let me give you a quick example. And then we're going to jump back to the whole women thing. I'm not going to leave you hanging on that one. Don't worry. We'll, we'll tie that up in a little bit of a bow at the end. Okay. But I want to give you a favorite verse of mine, uh, a favorite moment in the biblical story. This is Old Testament. And I'm going to give it to you completely and utterly out of context. Okay. And I'm going to give you it more or less literally translated because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So I'm just going to give you the literal translation. It's maybe a verse that if you grew up in church and you're around church, you may even know this, but I'm giving it to you out of context other than giving you the actual verse if you wanted to look it up, okay? And I want to see where this goes, okay? So here's the verse from 1 Kings. I, God, will give you, I'm not going to tell you the person's name here, I will give you a wideness of the heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Oh, that sounds lovely. A wideness of heart. Think for a second, online in the room, think for a second. What does it mean to have a wideness of heart? Now, what did you do? 
Did you dig back into your cultural and historical biblical, uh, Bible class that you took back in college? Or did you dig to your 21st century view of the world to try to understand what is a wideness of heart? Well, of course, you took your 21st century view. So anybody want to shout out? Give me a stab. You can comment online. I'll look at it after the service. What, what is a wideness of heart? What, take a stab at it. Anybody? I know. Everybody's like, I know I'm going to be wrong, so why would I yell it out, Taylor? Yeah. Okay. I'll give you my guesstimate of what you guys are thinking. Is you have a big heart. You're just a loving person. You love everybody. You got such a big heart of love, you just give everybody a giant hug. Okay? I'll give you more context. I, God, will give you King Solomon. In this moment in time, God said, King Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. And King Solomon said, I want you to give me what? Somebody said it, wisdom. But literally translated is a wideness of the heart. But in 21st century terms, what would we say? Where does wisdom reside? Right? It's an intellectual thing, right? It's an experiential thing that resides up here. But guess what? In ancient Hebrew, there's no term for brain. It's 3,000 years ago, guys. Come on. It didn't, it wasn't a thing. Every part of the thought process happened here. And so what we have to do is we have to translate that forward into our modern sense. And then we get what we originally are used to, non-literal translation, is I, God, will give you, Solomon, a wise and discerning heart. But even that's weird because it should be mind. I'll give you a discerning mind, a wise mind. But they didn't have that back then. And so if you choose to read something out of context, you could miss the entirety of what it's saying. And so that's why we have different translations, like this is the NIV version. So it's not a literal translation, it's more of a phrase translation. It takes the idea or the heart behind it, if you will, and gives you a sense of what the author means. And, this, and they do a great job. The academic people who put these things together do overall a great job but it's super difficult to translate a 3,000-year-old, 4,000-year-old language into modern-day English. Because at the rate in which even modern-day English changes, it's tough to keep up, isn't it? I mean, I thought I was once young, and now the kids have phrases and words that I'm like, what? I mean, you know, a couple years ago it was salty, and I'm like, because it tastes good? I, what are we talking about? No, but apparently that means ground, you know, uh, uh, grumpy or, or sarcastic or bitter, right? Um, and and uh, we had throwing shade. Wh what? Like, throw, throw in the shade, you know? Okay, anyways, how do you keep up is my point. All right, so anyways, what, what, what am I getting at here? The point is everyone has a dictionary, Everyone has their own dictionary of words and ways that they want to express something, and we should learn it. And this is what you do in a healthy relationship, isn't it? You try to learn your, your spouse's dictionary. You try to learn your kids' dictionary, right? If my two-year-old comes up to you and says, hey, everybody here at church, my tummy hurts, what is she saying? Okay, yeah, hungry, right? Maybe for some two-year-olds, 
Right, but my two-year-old says, I gotta go poop. Right, that's tummy. Tummy has nothing to do with hunger yet. But I know my child's dictionary. And would it not be ignorant, wouldn't even be borderline unloving of me to impose my dictionary on her experiences? It would be almost prideful. It would be almost arrogant. And how many Christians take that and impose it on this? And they scare people like me away from the church altogether because I may not read the same way you read it. And so we disagree and therefore we have to go our separate ways because that's what we do in Western culture today. And we have to have our little tribe and our little tribe and we have to look at each other across the battle lines and get angry while everybody else is looking on the sidelines and saying, you guys are crazy. I don't want anything to do with those Christians. You don't even know your own stuff. And guess what? It's usually over stuff that's not that even important. It's not the critical stuff. But the thing that could, that could bridge the gap is if we start to contextualize and understand that it isn't always going to be black and white because this is written by so many authors. We talked about this last week. So many perspectives over so many years and so many in different languages and three different Hebrew and Aramaic and, and uh, Greek. And then there's other translations, uh, translations like Latin. And it just gets really complicated. And we can try to make it as clean and perfect as we want. But in doing that, we lose something. I cannot, as much as I want to make my two-year-old's life clean and perfect and understood, that is not how it works. Because I'm, literally, and you, you'll know this if you brown kids at all, a month from now, tummy hurting could mean something completely different. Because a child is growing. And that's what happens or should happen to us as Christians as well. We have to be willing to humble ourselves to go to someone else and say, hey, tell me about your dictionary. I want to understand how you see the world. And so when you open up Genesis, you have to read it with a bit of a different dictionary than you read Paul. Because they're thousands of years apart, written in different languages, in different contexts. Paul has an idea of what a brain is. Genesis does not. But yet, because it is all bound together in one imitation leather-bounded book for 50 bucks on Amazon, we think it's all the same, but it's not. And a grown-up engagement with the Bible says, I may not always get it, but I'm going to try to understand it better and better every day. This is called meditation literature, not because we're creepy or weird or Eastern in our thinking. It has nothing to do with that. It's meditation because it takes time. You have to ruminate on it. Every time you read it, you may get something new and different and you stew on it, you process it, you process it together and you grow together. That's, and this is what Paul did. Paul did this all the time. He contextualized. He said, what he said, I am going to, to the Jews, I'm going to become a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'm going to become a Gentile. To uh, slave, I will become a slave. To the free, I'll become free. Why? Because I just want to tell people about Jesus. And so I may need to adjust how I contextualize how I understand everyone else's dictionary so that I can reach as many as possible. So to contextualize, let's go back to the verses about women. Women should be silent, right? Yet if we contextualize two verses later in 1 Corinthians, so chapter 14, we skip backward, well, it's more than two chapters, it's chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Here's what it says. But every woman 
who prays and prophecies. And then it gets to another contentious topic. With her head uncovered, dishonors her head. But we're not, I'll get to this in a second. But think about this for a second. How women are you supposed to pray and prophesy out loud, because that's how you prophesy, and be silent at the same time? It's the same letter. It's literally a few paragraphs apart. How do you resolve that? Well, you can ignore it, which is a lot of Christians, or you can try to resolve it and realize, hey, maybe there's something more here going on with what Paul said. And I'm just telling you, the more and more over a decade now that I have done this and gone through seminary and all this stuff, I've found the more and more I dig into uncomfortable, weird things like this, it starts to resolve itself the more and more I learn about it. And I come to recognize what Paul's actually getting at, that there's more going on. See, a lot of people, they miss this verse because they're focused on the head covering part. Okay, which needs context, which needs context, and that's good. So then you have to go and look, hey, what's happening in the town of Corinth back in those days? Well, for a lot of women, your head was covered unless you let your hair down, which symbolized that you were a prostitute. So Paul says, hey, ladies, I get that you're, starting, you're, you're part of a different religion following Jesus now. You're not a pagan worshiper anymore. However, you're kind of giving people the wrong idea about Jesus when you walk around with your hair down. And so instead of tripping everybody up around you, maybe, you know, just pull that thing up and put some covering on it. Not forever in thousands and thousands of years, but just because you're in Corinth. And that's the culture of Corinth during this time and season in history. Wow, that actually practically makes sense. Paul didn't want the image of the church to be something negative. He didn't want that to be a stumbling block. And so in love, ladies in Corinth, not today, ladies in Corinth, be mindful of the image you are communicating to the people around you because that will reflect back on Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Okay, well, what about this other verse, you know? Um, women, and can, so they, can they speak? Can they teach? What, what can they do? Oh, well, what did Paul say to his church, a letter to the church in Rome? Okay, this is a big letter. This is like one of the most critical letters in the New Testament. Paul just lays down all this theological stuff. It's super good. And at the very end of the letter, he has his like, hello, goodbye kind of statements. So the last chapter of the book of Romans 16, verse 1, he says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church, Okay, what does this mean? She's a deacon. Oh, she's a leader. How does she lead and be silent at the same time? I commend to you, Sister Phoebe. Why did he start at the beginning with Phoebe? Because Phoebe was the one who delivered the letter to the church in Rome. Put this to you a different way. Phoebe took the $5,000 plus letter. That's how much it would have cost Paul to write and transport this letter. About $5,000 plus in today's terms. Take this letter, he would she would come to the church, here's the church over here, and she would stand up in front of you all and she would read it. Why? Because she was there when Paul wrote it. And if you all had questions on this side of the room, she would answer it. Oh, wow, but now she's leading, now she's teaching. How does that work? But Paul, you said to the Corinthians, but they didn't have that question because they knew what was going on in Corinth. They contextualized what was happening. So it wasn't an issue when Phoebe showed up and Paul said, hey, she's fantastic. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. I'm teaching Phoebe. What? 
No, I'm teaching her to be a leader in the church because she's fantastic. And then Phoebe would go over to the other house church and she'd do the same exact thing. And men and women alike would learn from Phoebe and Phoebe would answer questions that Paul was trying to communicate. Yet so many times we, we open the Bible and I get it. If you say, well, Taylor, how am I supposed to do all this work? I get it. It's intimidating to open this up and try to process all of that. But let me ask you this. What, what would a loving person do? Ignore it, make it easy and walk away or say, you know what? I'm going to be curious. Even if it takes my entire life, even if I have to ask a lot of questions, even if I have to look up a lot on Google, maybe even take a class or two to understand that. But if, as we talked about last week, if this is God's story, if this is a book of relationship between our heavenly father and his creation, could it not be worth your time to figure out? What would a curious person do? Get to know God, their father, through his story, or walk away? Or walk away? As a grown-up, my friends, we have to, we have to, we cannot do this. We have to remember that the Bible is written in another time, in another culture, and we have to honor that context, because that is what a grown-up does. That is what a good parent does. That is what a good leader does. That is what a good friend does. They say, hey, I recognize that you're upset right now. I recognize that I don't even understand exactly what you're saying, sweetheart. But I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to engage is it difficult? Yes. But that's what love requires of us. That's what a grown-up does. Engages and gets involved and is curious even when it's challenging. Even when it's challenging. So here's some resources. Not an exhaustive list, just some. Okay? Resources. You can pick up a study Bible. This is a study Bible. That's why it's thicker, not because I'm a better Christian, but just because half of every page has like anecdotal commentary. It's commentary. So um, one of the first things I was introduced to, <coughs> excuse me, in seminary uh, was the idea of a commentary. I had no idea these things existed. Um, and I have a lot of commentaries at home. Uh, I haven't sprung for the big ones. The ones I really want are about $1,000 a piece. Um, because they span the entire Bible. Uh, and a commentary is um, academics, wonderfully intelligent people go through verse by verse and explain what's happening. The one that I really want, I think it's like 1500 bucks, seriously. And uh, it walks you through all the context verse by verse because that's sometimes what you need. And a study Bible is an abbreviated version of that. So you look at a verse and it shows you how it ties to other verses within the Bible. It gives you a brief explanation. Not always perfect, not always right as we talked about last week, right? Sometimes it's like, how does that even work? I don't, that doesn't make sense. Hey, we're all doing our best to understand something so incredibly awesome so incredibly complicated and we're not always going to get it right. And so we can either ignore it or we can continue to engage with it. So grab yourself a study Bible or if you want to even simplify it even more, you can get an amplified Bible. That just takes um, words and adds other words to them. So it'll be like love and, the, and it'll explain that, hey, love in Greek in the New Testament, there's four different words for love in the, in the New Testament. We, in English, we only have one, but in ancient Greek, they had four. 
And so it'll add other words. So it'll be like, you know, it'll say love, but then it'll say friendship, companionship, to help you to understand that this word for love is about friendship, not about romance, because that's a different kind of love, okay? And then there's a different, there's a love about community and so on and so on. So that's a simpler way of doing it uh, smaller. Okay, reading the Bible through Western eyes, this is a very interesting book, or they have another one, reading the Bible through individualist eyes. As Western people, we have a lot of hangups when it comes to the Bible because, and I wasn't introduced until I went to seminary. Actually, seminary might have been more helpful than I thought. Um, but um, <laughs> I don't know cost-benefit analysis necessarily, but um, you know, we live in a very individualistic society. All of us think as the power of the individual. That's our Western idea. That's our American idea. The individual can make it. You can achieve the dream. You have rights as an individual. In most other parts of the world, and definitely in the Bible, it was all about community. So you wouldn't say, I take responsibility for my mistake. You would say, we take responsibility, like everybody. And it's like, yeah, but I didn't make the mistake. But in communal culture, it's everyone's responsibility. It's a team effort, and that's how the Bible's written. So you have to kind of shave away all that individualism idea that you have in Western culture, which is very difficult to do, but it's how you can honor the Bible and read it in context. Um, there's a great uh, class by the Bible Project. It's like two and a half hours that you can go through step by step, and it's called The Art of the Biblical Words. Just Google it and find it. I think all of these things we're going to post on social media as well, and, and go check that out. I think I'm going to put in a link in the chat to the online people as well. And then, um, so check that out. And then in this series, I actually called an audible. So the last week in the series, so two weeks away, in week four, we're going to do a Q&A, um, not live. So I need you to email me your questions in advance. Some of you actually already email me questions. I'm like, oh, I could take a long time to answer this via email, or we can maybe do this as a group. So really the last... Uh, week in this series is, is going to be Q&A. And so send me uh, your questions, taylor at infuse.church, not .com, just .church, taylor at infuse.church or info at infuse.church or send us a Facebook message, send us a message on the chat box on our website, really any way that you can communicate with the church, I will get it, okay? And then in the last week, please don't send it to me on Saturday night. I know I'll write the message on Saturday night, but you don't have to send it to me on Saturday night. I like to like stew on questions, okay? So maybe send it to me a few days before, maybe even today, all right? And then we'll talk about it. But next week, it's gonna be a great week, uh, both for dads, child dedication. We're gonna talk about how one way, one way to read the Bible as an adult that really just changed my perception of, of how to look at the Bible. So that's what we're gonna do next week, all right? If you would, bow your heads, let's pray together. Um, and we're gonna sing one more song. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for this story, because it's not a book. It's so much more than a book. It's the story of how you have interacted with your creation, with humanity, with us for thousands and thousands of years. How you have for years and years and years invited us, drawn us to know you better. So Lord, help us to interact with you as adults, as grown-ups to not shy away from the difficult things, to not run away because it's gonna take some time and investment on our part, but to lean in, to ask questions, to wrestle with the difficult parts of faith because you are a loving and relational God that no matter our hangups, no matter our hurts, no matter our doubts, you wanna keep working with us. And it may take years for some of us, years for some of us, but you're gonna be right there, continuing to invite us to understand you better. 
until that day that it clicks, until we begin to understand our relationship first is between you and us. And we get this amazing story that have been told of people for thousands of years to complement that, to guide us, to point us, to teach us. And we should use that, but we should respect it for the story that it is, for the time in which you taught. And be comfortable that not everything is gonna be perfectly black and white. Be comfortable in the gray because that's where you have loved us very much in the gray because we are messy, difficult uh, people but yet you choose to engage us and love us and give us grace and forgiveness and truth. So Lord, help us as adults to send that back your way as well. To send that when we read the Bible as well, that same grace and the same truth with the heart of getting to know you better more than anything, because that's what that book's there for, to help to get to know you better for us to grow in a relationship with you more deeply. Help us to not lose sight of that. In your son's name, I pray, amen.